If you turn with me in your copies of God's Word to the prophecy of Jonah, uh, Jonah and chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4, and we'll commence our reading there as well at the first verse. Hear once again the word of our God. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. And he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore, I fled before unto Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and repentest to thee of the evil. Therefore now, O Lord, take, I beseech thee, my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Then said the Lord, Doest thou well to be angry? So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city, and there made him a booth, and sat under it in the shadow, till he might see what would become of the city. And the Lord God prepared a gourd, and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shadow over his head, to deliver him from his grief. So Jonah was exceeding glad of the gourd. But God prepared a worm, worm then when the morning arose the next day, and it smote the gourd that it withered. And it came to pass, when the sun did arise, that God prepared a vehement east wind, and the sun beat upon the head of Jonah that he fainted, and wished in himself to die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. And God said to Jonah, Doest thou well to be angry for the gourd? And he said, I do well to be angry, even unto death. Then said the Lord, Thou hast had pity on the gourd, for which thou hast not labored, neither madest it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should not I spare Nineveh, that great city, wherein are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand, and also much cattle? As far as the reading of God's word, and indeed may he bless it to us this evening. Beloved, as we come to the last two verses of this prophecy, we are marking almost four months, over four months of time in the prophecy of Jonah. So I think it's wholly appropriate for us to step back just for a moment and briefly assess what this book has set before us in these past several weeks. Of course, the question that we should be asking as we look at a text like this, spending the time that we have, uh, how have we profited under these considerations? Uh, How has the word of God affected us as we've contemplated not only Jonah's dealings with God, but God's dealings with the prophet, and, and God's dealings with Nineveh, and God's dealings with the mariner? How have we found this text, not only to speak of historical things, but to speak of ourselves. It's very important that as we look at Scripture, those questions are never far from us. But as we look at these last two verses, I think that in some ways 
we might find that the answer to those questions is made a bit clearer as we look at verses 10 and 11 of chapter 4. You see, here, of course, we do have the conclusion of the prophecy. Here you have, of course, God's final word over all that has gone before. And I would note that this is a definitive conclusion. There is no ellipsis to the text. This is the end of the prophecy because there need be nothing more added. And so as we look at this text, it's important for us to remember that this is a conclusion, a conclusion to what's happened immediately, and that, of course, is the prophet's indignation. You remember, as we saw last midweek, that the prophet sets before us in verses 4 to 9 a narrative, a narrative of high-handed presumption in which the prophet stands, as it were, over the works of God and would presume to judge. And you remember that his, his malcontent is really described for us in the language of righteous indignation. Jonah here stands, as it were, over the works of Jehovah and pronounces that Jonah, not the Lord, deals rightly. And you remember that the cause of this last moment of indignation, that final section that we find before we come to our text this evening, is Jonah's indignation over the fact that Nineveh is spared. And Jonah, Jonah is under this really remarkable token of God's wrath. You remember how notorious we saw before the east wind was. It was God's blasting wind, his desert wind that was typically to fall upon his choicest enemies. It falls on Jonah, not on Nineveh. And so in response to this, under this affliction, without any intermediary, without any relief, he goes before the Lord and he says, Remarkably, I do well to be angry, even unto death. Well, our text this evening is the Lord's response principally to that. How is it that the Lord responds to his errant prophet? You'll notice, friend, first of all, I think it's worthwhile for us to note that there is nothing else after these two verses. The Lord gets the final word. And that's a lesson in and of itself, isn't it? Here you have the prophet dialoguing with Jehovah, but when correction comes, when God tenders correction, God gets the final word. Because there is no court of appeal. When the Lord lays bare correction for the sinner, the only court of appeal is imaginary in the mind of the sinner. The Lord gets the final word. And what is the final word? What is the correction tendered by God? Well, it's given to us in these two verses by way of comparison. It's a comparison that perhaps is quite even obvious to the English, but but even if we were to read it in the Hebrew, it becomes even more clear. There's a comparison between Jonah and Jehovah. And the comparison is made clear as you look at verse 10. You have the pity of Jonah set markedly against, in verse 11, the pity of Jehovah. The word spare in verse 11 is the same word translated pity in verse 10. And the idea behind that word is having compassion. And so Jonah's compassion is set markedly against and in comparison to Jehovah's compassion. Now, friend, you recognize that this comparison is well warranted, isn't it? Because Jonah has already taken upon himself the rule 
of comparing his standard of righteousness, his standard of right, with the Lord's. And so the Lord answers the prophet by comparing these two kinds of compassion, Jonah's and his own. Take, first of all, Jonah's pity. It's given to us in these words, Thou hast had pity on the gourd. That's striking in of itself, isn't it? If we understand the word pity there is to have compassion, the Lord is saying, you have had compassion upon a gourd. Or or to put it perhaps even more in the vernacular, more strikingly, it's as though the Lord is saying, you have had feeling for this unfeeling plant. And then he goes on to say, that gourd for the which thou hast not labored, neither madest it to grow. It's a striking thing, isn't it? He emphasizes, first of all, that Jonah has indeed placed his affection on the gourd. But then he reminds Jonah of something that's quite striking, something that we'll take up in just a moment. It's not just Jonah's love, his exceeding delight in the gourd, but note in these words, he's citing Jonah's lack of labor, his lack of power, and by implication, his lack of prerogative over that gourd. He did not make it. He did not sustain it. And so why does he think he has a right? Why does he think that he has a right to complain how the Lord deals with him by it? And then he goes on to add, this gourd came up in a night and perished in a night. It was just a fleeting thing. But it was the object of Jonah's Jonah's compassion. And then, of course, strikingly, you have Jehovah setting before us his own disposition toward the city. And should not I spare Nineveh, that great city, wherein are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand and also much cattle. In other words, the Lord says to Jonah, you have had compassion upon a gourd, this unfeeling creature, but I have had compassion upon a great city full of great sinners full of many children, and even full of beasts. Now, as we look at that text, friend, the the meaning of the text is quite straightforward, but, but it is a difficult text. At first brush, it may not seem to us how these two verses really answer for us all that's gone before in the prophecy. But I want you to notice, friend, first of all, that we do, we do, well, rather, we must, we must take this as a definite, not a discordant conclusion. The Lord leaves no loose ends. He is dealing decisively with what's gone before. And I would submit to you that there is a way to see these two verses as being quite a definite answer to all that's gone before. Not only in the sense that it interprets for us verses 5 to 9 of chapter 4, but really as it sets before us the meaning really the thrust of the whole prophecy. Now, I think it's important for us to step back just for a moment and to think in the broadest sense. If we think about the meaning of this book and we say, well, the meaning of this book is, well, Jonah has an issue with free grace. In other words, Jonah just doesn't like the idea that such notorious sinners as Ninevites, as Assyrians, would be, would be the recipients of the Lord's grace. Well, if you compare that idea with what you have in the 11th verse, as Jehovah describes his own mercy, that doesn't quite make sense because, of course, you have the mention of the beasts. And more than that, as well, 
You'll notice here that in the 11th verse, Nineveh's sinfulness is not once cited. In fact, in the 4th chapter, Nineveh's sinfulness isn't even cited by the prophet himself. Secondly, if we take this book to mean something about the wideness of God's grace, that God is gracious to those outside of Israel, I would remind you that it's only Nineveh among the Gentile cities that is spared. Yes, it does go beyond the borders of Palestine. It goes beyond Canaan. It goes beyond Israel. But it is only one Gentile city that's spared. Alone among the Gentiles at this time. So what do these two verses address? Well, friend, I'd submit to you that first of all, you have here the sovereignty of divine grace set before us really conspicuously. I want you to notice the emphasis the Lord places on the gourd's origin. When he deals with Jonah, he reminds Jonah, this is something you did not make. It's not something that you sustained. It is not something that you created. He also cites, of course, Jonah's impotence in that. But he also, in the 11th verse, reminds us, Our God who has spared Nineveh is also a God who has created the gourd, created the Ninevites, and, to make sense of the very last and somewhat perplexing line of the 11th verse, is it not also God who has made the cattle? And so does he not have prerogative overall? You take exception, in other words, to my destroying the gourd and sparing Nineveh, but did I not create both? Do I not have right, full prerogative over both? That's one theme that is very clear in these two verses. But there's another theme as well. And that is the depth of divine grace. I said to you already that there is a comparison in these two verses between Jehovah and Jonah. And as you look at this, it's very evident that the foolishness of Jonah is certainly emphasized. But note, friend, as you look at Jonah's mercy, as you compare it with Jehovah's, how strikingly shallow it is. Jonah's malcontent with God's dealing over the gourd, and further, with God's dealing with Nineveh, is without any fellow feeling. He has more compassion for a gourd than he does for beasts, even for his own fellow man. And yet Jehovah... The Lord God, how much higher, how much greater, how much more lavish is his mercy than that of the prophet? Uh, Friend, as we look at this, then there are deep things in the text. Two of the greatest themes that sinners could contemplate, the sovereignty and the depth of God's grace, are set so clearly before us this evening. Now, friend, I said to you time and time again as we looked at this prophecy that this is a book about repentance. And and I still believe that. This is a book about repentance. It's a manual that sets before us both the character and the origin of repentance. And as we see with God's help in the time to come, even this evening, we'll see that that forms really a central point to these two verses as well. But as we hold all of these things together, there is a simple theme that comes to us. As we think about really the, the occasion for this dialogue between Jehovah and his prophet, we find that the prevailing theme is this. 
that grace comes only according to God's goodness and prerogative. Grace comes only according to God's goodness and prerogative. I want us to see that under three headings. First, the freedom with which it is given, the form which it takes, and the fullness from whence it, from whence it proceeds. And so take, first of all, the freedom, the freedom with which it's given. If you note back just to the 10th verse, you have the Lord setting before us his case against Jonah. Thou hast had pity on the gourd, that is, or had compassion for it, for the which thou hast not labored, neither madest it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. I want you to notice the detail that the prophet gives to us here. The detail that the Lord sets before the prophet himself. He doesn't merely say, you have had pity over a gourd rather than even beasts or even your fellow man. Now friend, in one sense, the way that we often read this text, I think we would say that would have been sufficient. But that's not what the Lord does. That's not how he deals with the prophet. He cites very particularly the idea that Jonah was created Sorry, that the gourd itself was created and sustained by another, not by Jonah. This creature that Jonah so delighted in, this creature that Jonah so lamented over whenever it withered, this creature, God says, you did not make it, you did not cultivate it, it was not sustained by your hand. And of course, lying behind that is the answer to the question, well then, who did? Was it not the Lord himself? It's a striking thing as you look at verse 6. The narrator there, as he's writing for us, is not content simply to tell us that a gourd grew. But he emphasizes the idea that it was the Lord God who prepared it. Who made the gourd? Who prepared the gourd? Well, of course, it was the Lord God himself. But friend, as you look at this, you recognize that the comparison that the Lord is making in verses 10 and 11 is not just with regard to the benefactor. It's not just with regard to those who had compassion, but also to their object. And so the gourd here stands also compared to Nineveh. So friend, who created the gourd? Who sustained the gourd? Who created Nineveh? or more particularly the Ninevites, the children in the city, the beasts that roamed its fields. Well, friend, both of them have this in common, that it was the Lord God who created them. And beloved, he who creates is sovereign. That teaches us something, doesn't it, about the Lord's dispensation then with regard to the Ninevites. The dispense of grace is wholly at God's free prerogative. Jonah cannot complain over God's dealings with the gourd any more than he can over God's dealings with Nineveh because God has made, created both. He is sovereign over all. And so if he is gracious, beloved, you remember this, grace comes to creatures out of God's sovereignty out of his sovereign good pleasure. It's important for me to tell you this, because there are some who would look at this text and say, well, the Lord recognized the intrinsic value that Ninevites possessed because they were creatures. And friend, they they do take that from the 11th verse. 
But I'd remind you of this before we go any further. The text of Scripture sets before us that even though God has made all things, that does not mean that all things will receive mercy. He, says the prophet, that made them will not have mercy on them. And he that formed them will show them no favor. Isaiah 27. Beloved, it's not the case that the creature has such intrinsic value in God, from, in God's perspective, that he must show them grace. God is absolutely free. He has formed them, as we read in Romans 9, some vessels of honor, some of wrath. And beloved, it's important for us to recognize too that as we look at this text, God deals with his people according to that sovereign good pleasure. This is the very thing that Jonah despises. This is the very thing that Jonah rails against. He, in his malcontent, he's opposed to the Lord's providence. He's opposed to the Lord working his will on the earth in this way. And so what does God set before him? A reminder, a tacit reminder, albeit, but a reminder nonetheless. He who has created, he who has made all things, rules all things. The prerogative is his. If we take Jonah in that way, beloved, what you see here is that this prophecy is very much like the ending of the book of Job. You remember how in the 40th chapter there, the Lord deals with Job. Just to read to you a couple of verses. Verse 6 of chapter 40. The Lord answered unto Job out of the whirlwind, Gird up thy loins, now like a man I will demand of thee and declare thou unto me. Wilt thou also disannul my judgment? Wilt thou condemn me that thou mayest be righteous? Hast thou an arm like God, or canst thou thunder with a voice like him? Deck thyself now with thy majesty and excellency, and array thyself with, with glory and beauty. Cast abroad the rage of thy wrath, and, and behold every one that is proud, and abase him. You see, what the Lord says to Job there, not only in the 40th chapter, but even before, it is Jehovah alone who possesses right over his creatures. And this is the very thing that he would remind Job the very thing that he would remind the prophet of even this evening. Now, if that's the case, beloved, this is a book then that's far more about the first table of the law than the second. Though it certainly says something about Jonah's lack of love for the Ninevites. It says so much more about Jonah's difficulties with the Lord's providence, the Lord's prerogative over the gourd and over the city. And the Lord reminds him very decidedly. The prerogative is his and his alone. The application for us is so simple, isn't it? If this is the case, oh friend, if this is the case, if we are all creatures in this regard, that all things are under the prerogative of God, we can't in any case say, what doest thou? Is it not true of you what the Lord says here of the gourd? You did not, as he says in that text, you did not labor over yourselves, you did not make yourselves to grow. And so can you complain with the Lord's dealings over you, he who is your creator and sustainer? But secondly, friend, it's important for us to recognize 
that this is a text that sets before us a comparison, yes. But really, it's a comparison between a non-existent thing and the reality. Jonah's mercy is no mercy. It's a comparison that shows us that Jonah's mercy is purely fabricated. It's just an idea, nothing more, where the Lord's mercy is real, and it takes real form. That's the second heading for our time this evening. What is the form that the Lord's mercy takes as it is real, as it is effective? I want you to notice in verse 11, he says that he would spare, that is, have compassion upon Nineveh. He'll have, he will have pity upon it. I think it's right for us to ask the question, well, how did Jonah first of all see this? This may be a bit of a bypath, but I think it's worthwhile. How did Jonah first of all discern that God intended Nineveh to be spared? Or in other words, what was the occasion for Jonah's complaint in the first three verses of chapter 4? Now friend, I'd submit to you that the plainest reading is always the one that we should side with. And so, as we look at those first three verses, to understand the form of this mercy as Jonah himself saw it, it's important for us to recognize that the substance of chapter 3, verse 10, has not been yet communicated to the prophet. Uh, Calvin, the commentators right through the running centuries, remind us that we have no real record that God has revealed through oracle to the prophet that he intends to spare the city. In other words, chapter 3, verse 10 The reader knows this much, but that has not yet been revealed to the prophet. And so, verse 5. Verse 5 shows us a prophet who does not know what will ultimately befall the city. He leaves the city to see what will happen. Now, as we look at that, friend, I want you to notice here that verses 1 to 3, then, have the prophet remaining in the city still not knowing certainly what will become of it. That's a crucial point. He does not leave the city until verse 5. And so the complaint is given even before he knows that the city certainly will be spared. There's a second observation that I'd make that would hopefully hopefully help us understand the occasion of verses 1 to 3. A friend, the leaving of the fifth verse only makes sense, only makes sense if we are looking at him leaving somewhere between day 38 and day 39. Now, there are some who would say that Jonah um, may not be very coherent, he may not be very lucid, but I'd remind you, friend, that the text shows a prophet who's in sin, not a prophet who's insane. And so the man that we have before us, we should assume, is a man who is waiting for God to reveal his will through providence, And of course, that means then he will wait outside of the city come day 40. Now, if we hold all of these things together, friend, that leads us to a very basic answer to our initial question. What was the initial occasion for verses 1 to 3? What was the thing that Jonah saw, first of all, as a manifestation of God's mercy, if he did not know at first that the Lord would certainly spare the city? Friend, the only thing that the prophet saw, the only thing that he saw as he remained within the walls of that city was the dolorous cries of a city pleading for mercy, calling for one another to cease from their evil deeds and to supplicate at God's throne for grace. That is all the prophet saw. That's the plainest reading of the text. 
And that's the very thing. The only thing that was certainly in front of the prophet. What form then did the mercy of God take? Well, strikingly, that form was Nineveh's repentance or apparent repentance. And note how the prophet finds its origin. It's a striking thing in this text. As he looks at a city now in dust and in ashes, he draws the origin of all of that directly to the grace of God. In other words, beloved, our prophet is not an Arminian. He does not look at Nineveh and say, these ones by their own free will, by their own ability, have wrought these kinds of works. The prophet says, I see a city repenting, and I assume then it is the grace of God. Note the connection in the prophet's mind. There's no, there's no intermediary. If this is a city in ashes, if this is a city supplicating at the throne of grace, Jonah's assumption is, it is issuing forth from the God of grace. A friend, if that's a genuine work of repentance, Jonah says, it is thus a gracious gift from on high. So what form does mercy take? Well, grace applied takes the form of genuine repentance. It's not just the case that Nineveh received mercy at day 40 when she wasn't destroyed. She received mercy even before. And this is the prophet's own view of the thing. And what form does this repentance take? Beloved, it takes the proudest sinners and makes them pictures of humility. Grace affects this inversion. He is a new creature, says the apostle. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. Well, what does that mean? Well, friend, it means, first of all, that God alone can affect that kind of work. In meekness says the apostle, the preacher is to instruct those that oppose themselves. Why? If God peradventure will give them repentance. Note the source of repentance. The apostle and the prophet find genuine repentance flowing from the exact same source. Nothing other than the grace of God. And further, the grace of God only through Jesus Christ. Christ was exalted at his at God's right hand to be a prince and a savior for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. If he's to be made a new creature, if the inversion is to be real, well then that man must be broken by a grace that he himself cannot cultivate. It must come only from on high. It must come only from Jesus Christ. And so friend, what form does that take? Well, it takes earnest idolaters and it makes them zealous Christians. Paul writing to the Thessalonians, he turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. You were once zealous about your idols, now you are earnest and sincere believers. Repentance. He takes a zealous persecutor of the church and makes him an earnest preacher. He which persecuted us in times past, says the Galatians, now preacheth the faith which once he delivered. Speaking of Paul. This friend is repentance. Repentance that takes a sinner and makes him the mirror of its opposite. Takes a creature that was proud and boastful like Nineveh. Turns them into a city of mourning. And pleading humbly for grace. When the prophet sees this, he says, this sets before me the loving kindness and the grace of, of my God. 
A friend, as we think about that, certainly this should remind us, not only is God free in how he gives this mercy, but man is absolutely dependent upon God for such grace. Jonah says, if this is true repentance, it must only flow from the Lord. Beloved, how dependent are we for the influence of divine grace? I want to remind you that if you are in Christ, beloved, you were born as needful for the omnipotent hand of God as the Ninevites were to reclaim you. And beloved, even as a believer, you still stand dependent upon the influence of the grace of God for your continued sanctification. As we close, we come to our third and our final point. And that is the fullness from which this grace flows. As you look at the 11th verse again, you'll notice here, the question really is set before us, and should not I spare Nineveh? Now, I said to you already, there's a twofold comparison in here. You have the benefactor, that is, in one case, Jonah, in the other case, Jehovah, and the object. In Jonah's case, it was the gourd. In Jehovah's case, it's Nineveh. But it does prompt the question, doesn't it? How can we make such a comparison? How can we compare these two benefactors and these two objects? Or maybe to make the question even a bit clearer, why, why did Jonah love the gourd? Why did he feel so deeply for this gourd? Friend, I think that question really sets before us the power of these last two verses, in even a shocking way. Jonah didn't love the gourd because he was an enthusiastic horticulturalist. He loved the gourd for a utilitarian and a self-serving purpose. He loved the gourd because it would do him good. Now, beloved, if you think about that, you see very clearly that Jonah's compassion is not really compassion. Jonah's mercy is self-serving. And this is what the Lord sets before the prophet. You have loved this thing that would do you good. But what of the Lord's mercy? What of the Lord's mercy toward Nineveh? It's an implication that flows directly from the Lord's dealings with the prophet. God's mercy issues from freeness, fullness, from a deep long-suffering. Take it in this way. It's as though he says to the prophet, you had compassion on an object that served your needs for a short while. I have compassion on Nineveh, that great city of rebels who received children and cattle, my benevolence, but rebels still. I mean, the entailment is obvious, isn't it? It's as though the Lord comes to the prophet and says, will you then presume to judge my mercy? which is true mercy against your selfish counterfeit. Beloved, when you think about this, what you see here, of course, is that God's mercy is greater, wider, freer than man's. And this is set before us so poignantly. When the Lord shows mercy to Nineveh, it's entirely unlike that. Entirely unlike that which Jonah bore for the gourd. What do I mean? Beloved, what could man add to deity? 
What good could man do for God? Take the Lord's own words. If I were hungry, I would not tell thee. For the world is mine and the fullness thereof. Friend, there is nothing that man could add. Nothing that a single Ninevite could add to deity. Who is, I'll say, all-sufficient God. Or take even another step. And this is perhaps the striking one, isn't it? Even Nineveh's obedience and turning to God added nothing to the perfections and to the glory of God. Well, there's the rub, isn't it? That's precisely where you and I might find our deepest and greatest struggles. Even our righteousness, beloved. Even our new obedience wrought by the Spirit of God for Christ's sake and through His ministry adds nothing to divine perfection or glory. Take it from the book of Job. Is it any pleasure to the Almighty that thou art righteous? Or is it gain to him that thou makest thy ways perfect? A God who is perfectly pleased in himself, beloved, is not gain, gains nothing, is added nothing that he lacked by our obedience. No, says the apostle, God is not worshipped with hands as though he needed anything seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. No, friend, Nineveh added nothing to God. When the Lord showed mercy to Nineveh, had compassion upon Nineveh, it was entirely unlike the self-serving and utilitarian compassion that Jonah had for the gourd. And that should strike us, beloved. Because it reminds us, doesn't it, that if we are redeemed, we're redeemed only out of a free love. Not because we could add anything to the Lord. I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake, and will not remember thy sins. Beloved, if we're saved, if we're spared as Nineveh was spared, the answer has to be that it was only of the Lord's free mercy, his free grace, and nothing in us. To put it even perhaps more poignantly before us, analogies fail us at every turn, but the idea is so striking Because as you look at the text, the gourd did good for Jonah for a short amount of time. But as you compare Nineveh and its rebellion against God for the centuries of its existence beforehand, a friend, it becomes even more striking, doesn't it? It's like a king who not only pulls a pauper out of his misery, but he's a king who comes to a rebel pauper. A a traitor who is also impoverished. And he dotes upon him from his own treasury. Even though the man could add nothing to his own coffers. The king comes out of his freeness and out of his fullness. To pardon a creature that could not do him any good. The king himself. Beloved, that's the kind of mercy that the Lord leaves this book on. This is the kind of thing that is supposed to answer for us really the book in its home. 
Our God is a God who is sovereign in his dealings. He planted the gourd and he made Nineveh. And so he rules over both. His mercy is freely dispensed at his own prerogative according to both. He's also a God whose mercy is a great deep. that flows not because the Lord has any need from his creatures, but flows out of a free benevolence. It flows out of freeness from on high. Now as we close this prophecy, friend, it does, it does set before us, these two verses, a definitive answer to all that's gone before. If you think about how this prophecy was to be received by the church underage, you do wonder, how would the initial readers take this text? Well, take for a moment just that last point that we stressed. Take this idea that the Lord Jehovah planted and made, sustained Nineveh. And therefore, he has prerogative to do with it as he will. And Jonah can complain no more about that than he can complain about God's dealings with the gourd. Well, what of Israel? We read Isaiah 5 beforehand. She was a vineyard planted, cultivated by Jehovah. He was the one who called her into existence. He was the one who not only as a benevolent creator, but through the gospel offered really to each Israelite to be a true redeemer. She would have none of him. Who then could complain against God's dealings with her if he cuts down the hedges, that is the ordinances of the gospel, if he for a time even for millennia, leaves her in darkness. Does he not have prerogative to do so? A God who not only has created her, but a God who has labored even through his servants, the prophets. And she would have yet none of him. Could we complain against God's dealings with his vineyard? There are many applications one could take, I think, as an Israelite from this book, but that certainly must be among them. Could any complain about the Lord's departure for a time from Israel? And for ourselves, the application, I think, becomes quite clear, doesn't it? If the Lord departs from the West for generations, beloved, could we complain against him? He who is our creator, but not only our creator, but through the ministration of his word, who has labored even among us, graciously calling to us to take hold of him when so many lands were left in darkness. Could any of us say, should he depart? What doest thou? Does he not have right over that which he has made? and over that which he has labored. But friend, that goes even a step further. It touches even ourselves individually, doesn't it? Speaking of the unbelieving person who has heard the gospel so many times, can we complain against God 
their benevolent creator. And as they've been under the earshot of the gospel, the one who's even called to them from his word to come. Can we complain against him if they perish in their rebellion? Can we complain against the Almighty, the judge of all the earth who does right in such a case? But even the believer, beloved, we we can't miss this either. Friend, when you and I have been given so much as a believer, and yet we've sinned against light and against love, do we have any right to complain if the Lord leaves us like he did Heman, without friend, without so many temporal goods, and in Heman's case, for nearly a lifetime? Can we even as believers complain if the sword comes into our home as it did David's because of our sin? Beloved, it's so crucial that we are people not not endowed with the spirit of entitlement. It's necessary for us to remember that our God is a sovereign God, a creator God. And if we receive good from his hand, it is only free mercy. Free grace. Secondly, the question is, of course, do we see ourselves in this text? The first question related to that is, are we resigned to the divine will? That is a prevailing theme in this text that we, I think, often overlook. But it's one that we can't miss. I've said to you time and again that this prophecy is about repentance. Well, Beloved, also, as this book sets before us men repenting, it reminds us that it's God who does all of these things in the book. God sends the storm. God calls the whale. God is the one who sends sends both the gourd and the blasting heat. The narrator is very clear. We're supposed to remember the sovereignty of God in all of this. And so when we see Jonah's malcontent, we see a man who's not resigned the divine will. We see a man who forgets that it's God who called the gourd and the worm. God who called the sea and the storm and the fish. God who called the fish and the blasting heat. Are we a resigned people? Are we content with sovereign grace? And then, friend, if we are, that will manifest itself through the kind of repentance even that we see in this third chapter. More and more our pride will become dead, that we might be made mirrors of humility. More and more we'll become opposite of what we once were outside of Christ. That really is the mark of a resigned disposition. My friend, as we do close now, Remember, as this text closes, it sets before us the wideness of God's grace. But oh, how wide is this grace? How wide, how deep is the mercy of our God? You could not add anything to God. Had you been damned for an eternity... God would not have diminished in his glory one iota. Had all of humanity been consigned to the fires of hell, or had others been saved than are saved, there would be no diminution 
to his glory and his perfection. You could not add anything to this God. You are not like Jonah's gourd. He would not look to you for hung- if he were hungry. He would not look to you if he were in the blasting heat. You could do nothing for him. And then more than that, beloved, even more than that, you were a rebel. Not only could you not add anything to him, you would defame him if you could. You would take him off the throne if you could. You were a rebel subject in every regard with regard to the heart. And yet, if you were in Jesus Christ, his compassions toward you are so deep. You could add nothing to him. Nothing, nothing but your rebellion could you bring. And yet the Lord, strikingly in these words, said he had compassion for poor, unworthy sinners. This book ends definitively. There is no ellipsis. This is a wholly appropriate and final word. All the complaining against God's dealings are silenced by a God who is sovereign over all of his creatures and by a God whose mercy is deeper, his grace more inscrutable than men could ever fathom. May the Lord bless these things to us. Amen.